We were talking about a case in Chilliwack. It involves a woman who was sent from the Surrey Memorial Hospital to a shelter in Chilliwack. That led to the mayor of that city writing a letter to the Fraser Health Authority asking why that was done and if that case could have been dealt with better or somehow differently. But it does shine the light on the homeless situation in Vancouver in the Fraser Valley and just how many people are dealing with homelessness. Coming up on March 12th and 13th, there will be hundreds of local volunteers. They will be taking to the streets of Vancouver. This is for the 2019 Homeless Count, and it's the count in the survey, uh, helping people get a better idea of just how many homeless people there are on the streets and exactly who the homeless are. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Sarah Canham with the Department of Gerontology at Simon Fraser University. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi, Jill. Thank you. Uh, What is the importance of, what can we learn from doing the homeless count? Well, a couple things. So when we're looking at older adults specifically, what we're seeing and really beginning in 2017, what we saw was that there's an increasing rate of older adults who are experiencing homelessness in the Metro Vancouver region. And this number, it's about 21% of people who are experiencing homelessness are aged 55 and older, and that number has stayed fairly constant since then, though given the rates of, of, of housing costs here, we wouldn't you know, be surprised to see that number increase uh, this year. And and it's uh, that seems like a large number because I th- I'm think and maybe it's just wrong and that that's kind of what we see as far as pictures and we see it, it tend I think we tend to think people who are homeless are younger people. Hmm. Absolutely. I think the sort of stereotypical idea we have of that might be might be the case. Um, but but what we're seeing is that there are you, you know generally those who have aged into homelessness, those who have been chronically homeless over their lives, but then also those who are experiencing homelessness for the first time in later life. So these are people who um, have potentially been renters uh, throughout their lives and the increased cost of housing are now sort of giving them one pathway into homelessness, increasing health conditions, that uh, are putting people at risk of, of homelessness and well as, as well as uh, social isolation and, and not having a, a strong social support network to prevent people from, from becoming homeless. So, and yeah, and the other thing also to keep in mind with that number is that um, we, we're talking about people who are aged 55 and older because one of the, the issues that we're, we're talking about is that older, that older adults have... Um, or pe- excuse me, people who are experiencing homelessness have significant health when when compared to their age match peers, and so so they're, they display signs of what we call accelerated aging. And so we're really looking at those who are age fifty, or in terms of the Metro Vancouver homeless count, age fifty five and older. Right, in case, and I would imagine too, because fifty five really, when you look at it, fifty five is not that old. But if right, you right. if you put in health concerns or health issues and homelessness, uh, that mm-hmm. it would make it uh, certainly far more challenging. Mm-hmm. And even exposure to the elements, you know, through life on the street as well, affects people's health. 
we look, do you feel like we get a good idea from the count as well in that does it count people who, and again, it might be oversimplifying as when you, when you hear the word homeless, you might think of somebody on the street, somebody who's so obviously homeless. Do we get a good idea though of people that maybe that are living in vehicles or who are couch surfing and staying with friends or staying with family? Right. That's actually a really great question because that, right, the count does go into to shelters and it does do its best to, to count people who are on the street, who, who we can visually see as experiencing homelessness. But it does not give us that full picture of people who are, as you say, couch surfing or living in very precariously housed situations. And, and this can be actually a particular issue for people who are older uh, and and for women, interestingly enough. So women do tend to have a bit more um, social uh, contacts. And so you see women living very precariously on friends' couches. Uh, These aren't stable locations, so they might have to move quite often. Or as you also mentioned, people living uh, in cars or RVs. Uh, in the region as well. Absolutely. So we don't really get a full picture through the count. It's definitely an underestimation of of the the experience of homelessness here. And are we able to take the information then and uh, one, I suppose, get more of an idea of the picture of the age of people, who it is that's homeless? Are we able to take that information though? Do we see positive things come from that as far as trying to, to end homelessness? Well, we yeah. So there are, I mean, there are a lot of people out there doing, diff, you know, trying to instigate different programs, advocating for additional resources, additional funding. Uh, one of the things that we need to think about as it relates to senior-focused programming is that we're not just looking to provide more housing and, and in this case, more affordable housing, but we really need to be thinking about models that link housing and support. So. You know, older adults need support with their activities of daily living, so cleaning their home, uh, managing their finances, uh, performing, you know, laundry and, and food and food preparation. So taking that housing plus support model and, and, and enabling people to live with this wraparound support is really what is going to help people stay housed and, and stay successful in their different housing uh, situations. Uh, and because I would imagine, too, it's it's not only, I mean, obviously for the person who is homeless, uh, that's the person of most concern and who we're focused mm-hmm. on. But it's also a huge cost in that even we look at this case in Chilliwack where a woman was sent from Surrey Memorial Hospital to Chilliwack. That's mm-hmm. somebody who was, was in a hospital, who was taking up a hospital bed, who was uh, needing services, who perhaps is somebody in that scenario, you would think uh, we could help them before it gets to that point. Well, actually, that's what our research is looking at now. I'm partnered with the Homelessness Services Association of British Columbia, as well as Providence Health. And we've been looking at that exact issue, the transition of people who are experiencing homelessness from the hospital into shelters or housing. And we see the absolute unique vulnerabilities of older adults in that situation, but then also that that shelters are not the appropriate locations for many people for a whole host of reasons. There are certain models, and one of them is called medical respite, where where we can we're, we're hoping that we're developing some of these in the region, and there's some very small opportunities to do this. But essentially, you would have 
a purpose-built location where people who are being discharged from the hospital can go following discharge where they might not be in that acute situation. They could free up the acute care bed in the hospital. They could go to this medical respite bed and then continue their recovery and their rest and still have access to those those support services, some nursing care, medication management, uh, wound care, IV therapy. And those are some of the big issues that require ongoing care um, while they're working on a housing plan. So then they would be connected to social workers or housing workers to help make the transition to an appropriate location following their discharge from this medical respite program. And so we are working with some amazing community partners to to get something like this set up in Vancouver. Um, But of course, it takes funding and, and political will. Uh, Of course, it certainly does. Well, we will leave it there. And I know we'll talk more uh, after the count and look at the numbers and hopefully more about initiatives uh, like the one you just mentioned. Uh, Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the program this morning. Thank you, Joe. Well, if you were uh, watching the testimony of Gerald Butts, you will know that the uh, story involving SNC-Lavalin and the federal government once again dominated news headlines this past week and will continue to do so for some time to come. Uh, Joining me on the line now is Patricia Adams, an economist, also the executive director of the Toronto-based Probe International. Uh, Patricia, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Uh, You've written in uh, the Financial Post uh, a piece about why uh, you feel that a criminal trial uh, is needed, that that would reveal uh, whether the corruption by SNC-Lavalin actually made its way into the government. Uh, Can you walk us through a little bit uh, your reasons, uh, arguments as to why a criminal trial is needed in this case? Yes, uh, we don't know and we won't know who did what and when in the case of SNC-Lavalin without a trial. Uh, Deferred prosecution agreements, which is what SNC-Lavalin wants, are negotiations behind the scenes, not always made public. Uh, There are agreements between the government or the prosecutors and SNC-Lavalin to pay a fine and promise never to bribe again. So we would be kept in the dark as to the details. Now, the reason to go to trial is that the public would see who was accused of what, who did what, uh, and how to stop it in future. So trials also, of course, have the the possibility of convicting individuals and, of course, the company. And that is really the strongest deterrent. And our goal here should be to, to deter corporate crime in future. But you don't do that with a DPA. DPAs are famous for becoming a cost of doing business, uh, they don't deter companies that negotiate these DPAs uh, offend over and over and over again. So as a deterrent, they don't work. On the other hand, trials do work. Uh, right, because uh, even looking at, at DPAs, it almost seems like, uh, like you said, if a company is fined and then, uh, you know, told, here's a fine for what you've done, what you've done is wrong, it almost seems like it becomes the cost of doing business. Absolutely. It does become a cost of doing business. And that's what we're seeing in the United States. They've had uh, close to 350 DPAs, and that's precisely what's happening. Uh, Our officials here in Canada say, well, many other countries use these DPAs, so we should too, without looking at the record of their failure. So it, it really is a mistake for us to have adopted them in the first place. And it was done specifically for the purpose of applying it to the SNC-Lavalin charges. 
the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that this corruption generally does not happen without government compliance in one way or another. So if a company bribes a foreign official, uh, very often what has happened in the past is that the government turns a blind eye to that corruption. They don't investigate. They don't look into it. In some especially egregious cases, there was one in Lesotho in South Africa, where the mastermind of the corruption and the bribery payment scheme was actually a a Canadian public uh, servant. It was the honorary consul in Lesotho, which is where the trials took place. So this fellow was on our, our public payroll, and he was the one who was arranging the bribe payments for a Canadian firm. Uh, to pay an official in Lesotho so that they could get contracts. So we need to expose this sort of thing. Um, it, it often, these trials will reveal the sort of government complicity, and that complicity can come in the form of, of willful blindness, simply not looking and not, not enforcing the law. And what do you say to the some of the arguments that have been made against this are that you sue the individuals or you charge the individuals but not the company? Yeah, the individuals absolutely must be charged as well. They they must be sought out. Uh, the, the best deterrent is jail uh, and also loss of assets. So the individuals absolutely should. Now, the corporations, especially in cases where the corruption really goes to the top of the corporation, uh, the board of directors may have been involved, even if it is the case where they, they were uh, willfully blind of corruption that was going on in their firm. In some cases, it's CEOs and very senior people. In some cases, in the case of SNC-Lavalin, I believe it's very, it's widespread. Um, and you, so you need to find the individuals, uh, you need to prosecute them, but you also need to uh, prosecute the corporation and you need to send a signal to them that this behavior is not going to be tolerated. You also have to disgorge them of their ill-gotten gains. They benefited from the corruption if it occurred in this case, uh, they benefited from it uh, and they should be disgorged of those benefits. And when we talk about it, you, the deferred uh, prosecution, I mean, I guess what makes it even more, I mean, the things that have happened in this case in this country in that it was brought in uh, quietly as part of this bigger budget bill. Uh, many believe, as you just said, too, it was brought in specifically for SNC-Lavalin. And now we've just had a court ruling as well saying, no, there's not going to be a looking back at this. There's not going to be another look at this to see if that is, in fact, uh, the best way to deal with this case. Yes, the decision that came in yesterday was very important because what it did was reinforced and stood up for the independence of our prosecution system. And this is absolutely crucial. I think that if SNC-Lavalin is given a DPA by the new attorney general, that it will undermine public confidence in our criminal justice system. And and that is very, very dangerous indeed. It, it erodes confidence uh, in in the public, the public has in its government and in, in its judicial system to treat everybody as equal before the law. So the decision that came in yesterday from the federal court was extremely important. It, it essentially said that our director of public prosecutions, our former attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould, they were correct, uh, that this decision uh, that was made by the director of public prosecutions should proceed and SNC-Lavalin should go to trial. Uh, so do you think then, are there cases where DPAs are the best choice? 
Well, that's a good question. They were originally brought in in the 1930s in the United States in order to deal with juvenile crime. And the purpose of them was to give these young offenders a second chance without a criminal record. And if they agreed to the terms of the deferred prosecution agreement, which usually involved counseling and rehabilitation, they their their criminal charges and prosecution and conviction would be deferred so that they wouldn't go through life with that on their record. They work uh, in those cases. But in those cases, you've got individuals who have a, a, a sincere interest in proceeding without a criminal record. In the case of corporations, they don't work because you've got large corporations, often very sophisticated structures uh, involving bribe and corruption schemes that are themselves very sophisticated. Uh, and there's, of course, this overriding risk, which is that the DPAs just become a cost of doing business, as is happening in the United States. And does it also tend to, to take away from the importance of our court system and the importance of trials in that we look at this, uh, this, this is a government that also, if we go back, uh, the other example I thought I could think of was in the deal, the settlement given to Omar Khadr. One of the comments from the prime minister was, well, if we'd gone to court, we would have lost anyway. And it seemed like you can't, you can't predict what's going to happen in court. That's the whole point of the system. And in something like this, it's as though it's suggesting, well, we can't go to court. There's no point in going to court. We know how this is going to end, so we'll just go with the DPA. It seems like they're kind of overstepping uh, what what we when it comes to courts and the role of the courts. Oh, absolutely. You're 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 quite correct. In the United States, uh, various regulatory officials and judicial officials have called trials the jewel in the crown of the criminal justice system. And the reason for that is because it tests both the accusations against individuals or corporations, but it also tests the prosecutors. So it keeps the prosecutors honest as well, that they are not uh, unfairly going after individuals or after corporations. So in a way, the trials are, are really the basis of our democracy. It is It gives the public an opportunity to review the charges that are made by public prosecutors against individuals and to weigh in on those decisions. It gives the public confidence that our judicial system is indeed independent, fair, and that they will be treated fairly in future. It's absolutely essential to our democracy. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this and for writing the piece. Very interesting piece in the Financial Post. Uh, So appreciate your time today. Thank you again. Thank you, Jill. It is the weekend. When we go to sleep tonight, the clocks go ahead one hour, springing forward 2 a.m., the official time, I believe. But many people have restarted the debate on why we do this. Should we continue changing the clocks twice a year? And what really is the impact on our sleep and on our health? Well, Dr. Julie Carrier is a sleep expert with the Centre for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine in Montreal, and she joins us on the line now. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, How much of an impact does this have, losing this hour of sleep uh, on our health? So you will feel with the time change in the the spring, you have uh, the first major consequence is that you will, if you do not prepare yourself to this time change, you will probably have an hour of less sleep um, in the night of Saturday to Sunday. And uh, this doesn't seem to be a lot, but considering that a vast majority of the Canadian population is chronically sleep deprived, this small sleep depth of an hour is uh, probably will be uh, the thing that will make 
people feel even more uh, sleepy uh, in the Monday. The other challenge is that you need to advance your biological clock. So you will need uh, to try to go to sleep at an earlier biological time. And this is a challenge that your biological clock is able to do uh, quite easily. It's exactly the same uh, principle than if you travel and you have a jet lag. Uh, though it's a little bit more difficult to advance our biological clock than it is to delay it. And uh, so in order to prevent and help your biological clock uh, to phase advance, uh, the trick will have been, if you would have invited me <laughs> earlier this week, is to start to train it a little bit uh, earlier. So, for instance, uh, if people uh, last Thursday will have started to go to bed 15 minutes earlier each day and uh, going and waking up 15 minutes earlier each day, that will have been helpful because the biological clock is able to face shift, but it takes a little bit of time. So next year or, or at the next uh, time change, uh, please uh, try to adapt a little bit earlier than uh, on the Saturday night when we have the time change. And one last uh, but very important uh, advice will also be, uh, and this is good for the children, for the older people, for the adults, will be to expose yourself as much as possible to uh, light in the morning. So you know your biological clock is able to adapt to a time change, uh, especially, um, and, and the, the most potent uh, thing in the environment that helps our biological clock to change time is the light. And the light in the morning, so the light that you receive immediately after waking up is very good to uh, tell your biological clock to phase advance. So even though it's difficult sometimes when we are sleepy to turn on the light or to go in very uh, bright environment, I highly suggest that will be the way that your biological clock will adapt uh, more rapidly. Uh, and you mentioned, too, that we are, many of us are already very uh, sleep deprived. We don't get enough uh, sleep. Uh, so if we're already dealing with with people who don't get the same amount of sleep every night, uh, perhaps get up at different times of day, uh, does it really make it so losing the hour? Does it still have that huge impact? Yeah, but for me, it does. And, and it's not to say for me, the most important uh, message that I would want to tell the population is way more that we need to put sleep as a very high health priority. And this is, I think, the important message here is that, of course, the time change is another a stressful event that will put another challenge on the sleep-wake cycle. But the real, the real public health issue is that people do not, uh, prioritize their sleep. I mean, the, some people uh, do have an excellent sleep, so no sleep problem. The problem is that they will not put that into a priority for uh, their health. And so they will cut the number of hours of sleep, or even when they decide to sleep, they will bring, for instance, the new technologies within the bed and being awake to text or etc. during the nighttime. 
So a thing that is very uh, clear now in the studies is that the young population, starting teenagers, uh, young adults, but also going up to middle age, one of the biggest uh, sleep challenge is that they don't consider sleep as an important health factor. And this is very wrong. I mean, we try to be even more productive by cutting the amount of sleep that we have, but this is a very... Uh, bad strategy in order to uh, for our health short term but also uh, long term wise because studies are showing that the way you are sleeping now is predictive also of the health uh, cognitive health emotional health and uh, physical health later which it must be frustrating or for you to, because it is the first thing that people will often skimp on or if you have to if something has to give a lot of the times it is sleep whether it's staying exactly. up later or or we give up on that so easily without really making that connection to between sleep and health exactly so that's that's for me the major problem and what is very sad is that it's mostly the young that are doing it because they are able also to overdrive i mean their sleep need but that doesn't mean because you are able to function under uh, chronic sleep debt that you are not having an impact on your physical health the other issue that for me is also important to say is that beside the people that do not consider sleep as a major priority, we still have 25% of the Canadian population who is suffering from a sleep disorder. And this is huge also. So the message for them also is to uh, to try to find help because sleep is important also. And uh, we there are uh, many sleep disorders, but we also have uh, solutions for them. So it's important to discuss also our sleep problems with our healthcare professionals. And does a sleep disorder, do you find that it generally or is it often connected to other health issues in that yes. if you're uh, overweight or, or something like that? Plenty. So not only sleep disorders, but also chronic sleep debt. Uh, it's uh, linked to uh, increase in uh, cardiovascular problem, to increase in obesity, to, uh, because sleep deprivation has multiple impact. It will change the way your hormones are secreted. It will change your brain health. So now new studies are even showing that tell me how you are sleeping today and I will be able to predict also how your uh, brain will be functioning when you will be older. So it's it's not an, an unimportant. Uh, I think that uh, compared to uh, good heating or, or doing physic, being physically active, um, sleep is the underdog in this uh, health thing. And this is because it took a little bit more time for the, the data or the scientific data to be very strong. But now we know that. So, so, so it, chronic sleep deprivation, as much as unsolved sleep disorders, will uh, produce also way more health uh, issues on, on almost all aspects, including, as you said, uh, obesity, cardiovascular health, even the immune system is not functioning uh, as well when we are under sleep depth. Uh, so I suppose that's one of the good things, uh, because every time we change the clocks, it sparks the debate on whether we should do that or not. But it also exactly. gets the conversation going on the importance of sleep. 
Exactly. So that's why uh, also I'm very happy to to be here and 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 to tell the the, the population also to, to to really try to find solution and to really try to to prioritize their sleep as well as they are prioritizing uh, being physically active or eating well. All right. Very good advice, uh, especially this weekend, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Earlier in the show, we were talking uh, with uh, Patricia uh, Adams about the fact uh, she has written about why uh, there needs to be a criminal trial when uh, dealing with SNC-Lavalin, why a deferred prosecution would not work in that case. It certainly has been dominating news headlines for several days now. And we're going to talk more about something that has been brought up. And the Prime Minister did mention this in his non-apology when he held the news conference saying that the government would look at the idea of separating the justice minister from the role of attorney general. And that is exactly what my next guest has written about uh, on her website. It's uh, been posted, published in the Georgia Strait as well. Uh, Sarah Lehman joins me on the line, a criminal defense lawyer. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, You wrote about this and the fact that the testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould shows just how much we need to separate these roles. Uh, Why do you think it's important uh, or what did you get from that that shows us that we do need to, to make them separate? Well, really, when you listen to her testimony, it comes down to a conflict of interest that she was experiencing. And she acknowledges that at one point as well, when she was before the um, Senate committee, or rather the um, House of Commons committee. And she says, you know, I can't wear all of these hats, or one person can't wear all of these hats. And it's true. Um, When you're working as a elected official, you're working in cabinet, um, as a cabinet minister, you do have to consider these political issues and these partisan and issues on behalf of your constituents. But then in the role of attorney general, you're meant to be completely impartial and divorced from that and only focusing on legal issues. So it's difficult to determine where you should actually put your interests when you are trying to uh, make a decision on any given issue. Uh, And you reference as well uh, what's happened in other parts of the world or what's happened uh, in uh, in the UK and Britain. Is that something that that you would think or that you think the Canadian system should mirror? Yes. So in Britain, they do have an attorney general who is a minister, but it's a non-cabinet minister. So it's a person that's appointed by the Queen on recommendation of the prime minister. And they don't hold a seat in cabinet the same way that elected officials do. And I think that's a really great system because it makes it very clear where their loyalty should lie and what they should be doing and what they should be considering when they are giving legal advice to the government. So by separating those two roles, there's less of a possibility that a conflict of interest will arise and also that, of course, we see corruption happening. Uh, do you think, though, I mean, I, I get what you're saying and, and there has been this idea floated that they should be separate. But if we take it back a step, Uh, Before that, even uh, the government knows the role of the attorney general, the role of the justice minister. And even if it is the same person, a government should still know uh, not to interfere in criminal prosecutions and that pressuring that person, even if it is the same person in the two roles, is the wrong thing to do. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting discussion to have as well, because, again, it comes down to perspectives. 
was uh, the former justice minister being pressured or was she being just advised to perhaps seek other opinions, outside legal opinions about what she should properly do in her role as attorney general. And so, again, it comes down to a conflict. It comes down to which hat she needed to wear at that particular time. Should she be considering the impact that her decision would have on voters and the possibility for re-election for both herself and her party, or should she simply have been considering strict legal implications of her actions? So it's a difficulty that I don't think we need to have in this country, and it could be easily cured by just separating those two roles. And, and what did you think of when, when you, and you reference Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony in this piece about what she told the, the, the Justice Committee, what, and again, her, her role of this, so what she felt, so what she went through. And then we heard from Gerald Butts, who really highlighted that, well, no, I think this happened and it became this whole perception or it became this idea of you had to figure out, well, who, who's telling the truth or do they both? Did they both just take this completely differently? Yeah, and I mean, really, there can be a lot of truths in one single story. And Gerald Butts pointed that out in his own testimony, where he said, you know, when it comes to a matter of perspective, there can be different truths. And I do believe both of them. They both came across as very credible, uh, believable witnesses. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to a matter of perception and also to, again, trying to juggle both conflicting roles that one person is tasked with. How difficult do you think it would be to separate the two? I don't think it would be that difficult, but it is something that does need a lot of um, research prior to it occurring. And I think it's something that would have to be tabled uh, as a legislative amendment. Um, I expect that the House of Commons Justice Committee would be um, researching this and exploring it uh, prior to putting it forward, perhaps in the form of a bill uh, in uh, the House of Commons. And it would have to um, happen that way. But it, it is something that would take time. But I think it's important for us to consider it because there's really no rationale behind having those two roles in one uh, forum. Uh, I think that we could separate them uh, quite easily and there wouldn't be very much of of, uh, a reason not to do so. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. Although I would imagine too, people might say, well, wait a minute, this this has come to light because of this particular case and uh, a government uh, that uh, very much, I mean, we even saw in her testimony, I don't think there's any question about the fact that, yes, the Prime Minister said, I'm the MP from Papineau, uh, there is an election coming up, this is important. They keep pushing the jobs uh, numbers, even though there's not really anything to back those up. Uh, some might argue that to, the, the position has been the same person uh, for for generations, and there hasn't been a problem, there hasn't been a huge problem until now. Well, there hasn't been a problem that we've known about. And I think that's the critical distinction here, is that we have a former justice minister who is extremely strong and is very vocal and able to stand up for herself, and she wants to do that, she's inclined to do that. Whereas, perhaps in the past, we've had justice ministers who are more willing to play ball, so to speak. Right. Right. So I do, <laughs> I do think it's an issue where we have a potential for corruption with so long as we have those two roles combined. What kind of a response have you had since uh, kind of putting this idea out there or being one uh, to, to back up this idea that, that maybe this is the direction that we should be going? Well, there seems to be quite 
quite a lot of support for it. Um, lots of people are quite interested in the idea. Uh, it's something that hasn't really been suggested uh, before, but it's something that, you know, should have been perhaps suggested before. You know, why didn't we see this before? And again, it's probably because we haven't had it at the forefront of our minds. Um, but now that our attention has been drawn to this issue, I think that structural change is necessary to make sure that in the future, the next person who's acting as justice minister or as attorney general isn't going to experience the same kinds of political pressures or the same um, possibility for corruption that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould experienced. And do you think, is it also an issue on a provincial level that it should be looked at there? Yeah, I think that it's important for us to look at it on all levels of government. Because again, whenever you have a person who's elected, an elected official, they are responsible to their constituents. They do have to consider things like jobs and housing and so on and so forth. So it would be difficult for that person who's making those political considerations to then divorce themselves from those and uh, strictly function uh, in a legal capacity. So I think it's, it's quite important to ask ourselves, why is it that Canada has developed these two roles into one person and why can't we separate them for the good of our government moving forward? All right. Uh, it's an interesting idea and certainly one uh, that people are talking about. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.